Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an English-Canadian novelist. He was born in London and grew up in Vancouver before returning to the UK as an adult. He's written five works of fiction, including his best-selling debut novel, The Imperfectionists, which was translated into 25 languages. Before his career as a novelist, he had a long career as a journalist and foreign correspondent. His new book, The Imposters, takes place during the pandemic and tells the story of Dora Frenhofer, an ageing novelist determined to finish her final book before she loses her mind. Tom Rackman, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you very much. I absolutely loved this book and we'll go into how it's structured and what it's about in a moment, but I understand that it's pretty much autobiographical. I mean, she may be an old lady, but in fact, she's kind of you. Yeah, she is kind of me, and maybe I'm kind of an old lady. (laughs) Um, Since the book is from the perspective of a writer facing a confusing, culturally fragmented and slightly crazed political world, then that's something that I could definitely relate to. Absolutely. You're the son of psychiatrists. Psychologists. Psychologists. They would would be keen to differentiate. (laughs) Tell me how that influenced your upbringing. Was your every mood analysed? No, not really, at least not consciously to me. There were certain star charts around the house that I now look back on with a certain degree of concern. But no, they were uh, wonderful parents who I think most psychologists know, and certainly children of psychologists know, that having clinical expertise doesn't necessarily apply to the parenting. So they understand their field. And in my father's case, that was fear and obsessive compulsive disorders. And my mother did a lot of work with chronic pain and so forth. But in terms of child rearing, their approach was, I think, as good or bad as anybody else's. And I was lucky in that theirs was good. Mm. They were kind and, and decent parents. And I think the only two respects, I think that psychology had a large impact on my childhood one small and one large. A small one is that I remember being hired out to various psychological experiments when I was a boy, but always with a reward of a few dollars. So that was always fun, doing strange tests in a lab. And the more significant one was that I think that it doesn't have to do with their training so much as their inclination, which is that they were fascinated in other people's brains. And I have always had a similar interest. So Many of our meals were not just about events, but about people in events and trying to think of what people were doing and wanting. And and it wasn't there was any conscious intent to do that. But I realized that that was a fascination fed by the sorts of conversations we had around the house and one that is very much embedded in me. And a writer is born out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go straight into journalism? Well, at university, at my undergraduate in Toronto, I was studying cinema. And when I was growing up in Vancouver, my session, I would say, was movies. And I really wanted to be a filmmaker. And when I went to the University of Toronto, I studied it there. They didn't have a filmmaking program, but they had a cinema study. So I studied lots of films and fantasized about doing a graduate degree where I would actually make them. But as my studies progressed, I became increasingly jaded about the film world and all of the obligations to get funding and the commercial directives of producers and so forth. And I also, in my very failed attempts to do little studenty films, I found that almost nobody else ever turned up. It occurred to me that, that a problem with this art form was that it was collaborative and I wanted to be able to do things just on my own. I wanted to be able to go into a room and come out with a story. And so I tried doing that. And 
in tandem, I became increasingly keen on literature. I think that growing up, I had read a lot, but a lot of light things, magazines and, and things that were related to my interests. But I was not particularly bookish. My family was very bookish, and I stayed away from it. But in university, I took that up, and I started to write then, and that became my passion. And then from there, I thought, if I was going to write a novel, I should have some world experiences and life experiences, since mine had been much too pleasant to write good books. So I thought, how can I see the world and support myself and improve my reading and writing? And the best answer I came up with was journalism. So I did that for a number of years, but always with the intent of eventually turning to fiction. Mm. You studied, in fact, at Columbia. You studied journalism at Columbia. That's right. It was an intent to give myself a kind of crash course because I remember when I applied, I simultaneously looked at the application forms and saw that they required all sorts of clips that you had previously written, and I had written none. So I thrust myself before all of the student newspapers and begged to write things and did in a hurry. But the whole plan was to figure out how on earth you do journalism, and I didn't have any sense of it, and so I took a course and ended up being one. Uh, and in fact, employed by the Associated Press. Yeah, that was my first job out of university. I was an editor on the international desk, which looking back, and maybe even at the time, was slightly insane. It was an incredibly useful education, but I was 22 or 23, and I was editing these amazingly complex dispatches from war zones around the world. And I remember that in my very first days on the job, the cruel senior editors would give me long feature articles by particularly temperamental writers without telling me, without warning me ahead of time. So I would think, well, I better prove that I can do this job. So I would rewrite the thing entirely and then get unbelievable screaming attacks on the phone from Beirut or wherever it was. So bit by bit, I figured out both the craft and the tactics and eventually was able to manage at it. But I never felt quite like a journalist. I felt actually a bit like an imposter. You travelled, though, all over the world. I mean, you spent time in India and Italy, Japan. Yeah, I did. That had you know, had always been my hope, and it was why I, rather than just entering journalism, I tried to get into the international side of it because I did want to use it to to be able to see the world. Something that that was possible then and still possible now, but I think a bit more possible in those days when the traditional news media was was stronger, had more funds, and it was feasible if you were cunning enough to to get sent around the world. And I did do that for about seven or eight years, I think. And then finally, you gathered up your courage. And moved to Paris. Yeah, I also, perhaps more importantly, I had gathered up some pocket money because I had saved my income from the preceding years with the intent of maybe doing something with it. And I was going along with this journalistic career and it was going fine. It wasn't spectacular by any means, but it was all right. But I was getting close to 30 and I started to realize that I was looking a great deal more like a journalist than like a writer and that if I wanted to become that, I should probably do something about it quick. So I looked in my bank account and figured I, if I lived very cheaply, I could cope for about a year in Paris. And I chose Paris not for particularly romantic reasons, but because I, I didn't know anybody there. It was relatively close and seemed like an interesting place to explore and know better. And I had some French from studying in Canada as a child. And I thought, well, look, I'll go there and just dedicate myself for a year to writing a novel. And that's what I tried to do. We know that your debut book, The Imperfectionist, was a huge success, particularly for a debut novelist. But did you achieve that within that year? Not at all. In fact, I achieved very little of use. Well, I achieved a lot of use, but not the use that I had intended. So what happened was that I wandered around Paris a lot. I drank a lot of café au lait and uh, smoked too many Gaulois and... 
I spent my time breathing in the city and breathing in probably too much nicotine as I read books and thought about what I would do and plotted and wrote things in notebooks and spied on people in cafes. And I had uh, altogether a rich and very thoughtful time. But as the months passed, I didn't have a lot of pages to show for it. I tried lots of stories and I tried lots of ideas, but nothing really came together. So I was running out of money and I started to get a bit panicky. I started to think that I should stop faffing around and if I wanted to write a novel, I should probably do it pretty quickly. So I made a calculation. I thought a typical novel is about 300 pages minimum. There was a nice correlation to the number of days in a month, 30. So I thought, okay, 10 pages a day for one month, I'll have a novel. So let's see what happens. So I sat down and for 30 consecutive days, I wrote 10 pages. I made myself get up to that mark or as close as possible on an idea that I had. And in order to do this, I not only exhausted myself, but I also never looked back at what I was writing. So I just go 10 more, pen, 10 more pages and so on. And the most, I would just glance at the final sentence of the day before and then just get going. And it was a strange experience because I poured out all these words with uncertainty alternating with hope, that I had periods where I thought this is maybe terrible, and I think it probably is, and other moments when I thought well, that passage was thrilling to write. Maybe, maybe I'm getting somewhere. So finally, my month was up, and I had written a draft, and I knew that it was very incomplete, but I finally had something to work on. And I thought to myself, well, it's not a novel yet, but I do have material and maybe I could do another month and this month revise that. And so I did that and I kept doing that until finally I had a manuscript I was l not totally ashamed of. And so I gave that to my key critics, one of them being my mother, who I knew at least she would say something nice about it and encourage me. And so <laughs> I waited in terrible anticipation and for a few days and had a call with her, me in Paris, she in Vancouver, and she said, oh, I'm so glad to talk to you about this book. You know, it's been really engaging and I just wanted to let you know how bad it is. And uh, <laughs> she didn't put it like that because she's a loving, sweet person, but that's how I heard it. And I was terribly disappointed, not least because I couldn't really disagree that it wasn't, it was more a botched manuscript than it was a proper novel. And so I threw it away and I was out of money and I had to figure out some way to, to manage. I was in Paris at this point and the whole situation sort of inverted. So I went from being jolly in Paris and figuring out the writer's life to suddenly not being a writer, being a, a failure and not knowing anybody in this city having no money and no job and, and no friends, really. I was it had intentionally isolated myself and, and now I was paying the price. So I needed to find some income and I went to the, the International Herald Tribune, which was the uh, newspaper set in based in Paris that was owned jointly owned by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And they needed some temporary editors. So I did that for a while because I could and I earned a bit of money, and then I moped. That was my main <laughs> pastime in, in my free time. I, I walked around feeling very sorry for myself and playing sad classical music on my iPod as I wandered through the Bois du Boulogne and things like that. It so was, romantic. It was very unromantic. I was just, it was very pathetic. It sounds good in retrospect, but it was terrible at the time. But uh, I suppose that ultimately I, I had a thought, which is that I haven't necessarily failed if I haven't finished yet. So maybe I could try again. Maybe I could try another one. And Gradually, the seeds of a new idea came to me, and I started to write it. And because I was working, I couldn't write at the same clip. But I did take many of the things that I had learned in that first year 
and put together a book that worked much more effectively and ultimately that I sold, which was The Imperfectionist. And did incredibly well. And I mean, your career went on lots and lots of, well, five books. Just, I mean, great, great reviews. People love your work. The Italian Teacher was in 2018. Before that, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, The Imperfectionist, and Basket of Deplorables, of course. Tell us about that. Yeah, Basket of Deplorables was a fun excursion. It was sort of halfway between a collection of short stories and linked short stories. So it was commissioned as an audiobook, actually. And then I thought, well, maybe I can turn this into a small volume and publish it as a print book as well. And the whole concept of it is that it begins on the night of the election of Donald Trump. And each of the chapters, I think there are about six chapters in that, tells a different story of elements of America in disarray and falling apart. And it was done much more quickly than anything that I had ever done before because they had a, a short deadline and also because they were intent on having something that was very much engaged with the times. And that's something actually that I quite like in fiction. I like to write things that feel that they're connected to the period that we're in rather than just general generic stories. And I myself, maybe from the journalistic background, I'm very interested in news and politics and the world. And so I try to feed that into my books. And this was a therefore a great opportunity. And so I hurried that out. And unfortunately, some of the main characters, not least Trump, uh, haven't left the scene yet. I know. I mean, that's what's appalling about it. You're writing in the moment about the moment. That was 2017. We're still there. <laughs> I know. I know. That's the funny part. You talk about being in Paris and having no friends, of intentionally isolating yourself. And I wonder how that feels. Is there loneliness in that? Because certainly in your new book, The Impostors, there's a thread of loneliness that really runs through it. And I wonder about actually living that, how it felt. Yeah, I think that a lot of my writing has that going through it. I think that there is something that is in me and in many of my characters of having a ambivalent view towards living that on the one hand, very interested, fascinated even by human beings, but also drawn to isolation and solitude. And that is also something that is often required for a writer to have those two traits that on the one hand, be curious about people. But on the other hand, if you're too much with them, then you can't just do the long hours of writing. And I think that either that's a trait of writers or it's a trait of me that has filtered into my writing. I'm not sure which it is. But it's certainly the case that many of my characters throughout my books are faced with this conflict, this tension between wanting people, but also wanting to be alone. Mm. And another theme that seems to kind of ring throughout is this idea of, I suppose, trying to get a, a good work-life balance of people who are absolutely driven by their work, who fall apart if there isn't work. And I think that's particularly true of journalists who will miss great life events because there's a story and suddenly they've got to go to Burkina Faso. Yeah, I think that I was a very, very ambitious person growing up. And I organized my entire life, as I said earlier, my entire adult life around trying to succeed at this objective that I had of writing and getting a book of mine on the shelf. And that became such a, a powerful drive that I was also probably attracted to people who had similar drives. And one of the traits of such people, I think, and certainly of me, is that you become... I wouldn't say quite addicted, but dependent on the work because the work is both blissful when you're doing it, but it's also becomes your 
metric of yourself that I remember recently hearing somebody, I think it was an artist, saying that you shouldn't put your self-worth into your art because if you do, then there are all sorts of perils that will come your way, uh, not least that you're vulnerable to all the crazed vicissitudes of the art form and the, and the critics and so forth. So it's a dangerous idea. But on the other hand, I thought to myself, first of all, that is true. It is a very dangerous and bad idea. And then I thought I have done that, definitely. And then I thought that I sort of had to do that because the whole point of it, in a way, was feeling another small person in the large world and irrelevant and wanting somehow to assert some irrelevance and to say things that other people might become interested in and find a way to carefully express them such that they would be drawn to it and listen to the thing that I had to say. And it seemed like, not that I have things that are exceptionally important, but I do have the same urge and hope that I think everybody does, that they could say things and people might be interested. And so on the one hand, it's a dangerous game to play to put your own value in what you do. But on the other hand, it's also maybe maybe the only way that you do really ambitious things if you have a slightly psychologically twisted objective that you're going for. But it also brings a lot of pain and distress throughout. And I think that's why part of why people who pursue the arts are often unhappy, troubled people because there are very large stakes personally that nobody else really cares about. Mm, absolutely. Well, let's talk about Dora, who's the protagonist in your book. She's a, a 73-year-old Dutch pensioner and possible alter ego. <laughs> and she's confined to her house during the pandemic. She's trying to finish her last book. She feels like she's losing her mind. And I love the fact that her husband is, what do you call him, her her ageing... Assistant. Her ageing assistant, who's, you don't mean that he's ageing, although he is. He's there to tell her when she's aged sufficiently and ought to call it a day. That's right, yeah. She has this relationship with him where she has always lived in a very, very independent life and at stages, you would say, accomplished, at other stages less so. But as she ages and as she reckons with her own decline, she confronts a worry, which is that if independence is vital for her, then she's willing to end her life when she can no longer be independent. But how will she know when the time is right? How do you know that if your decline is incremental as it presumably would be, then your judgments aren't as sound as they were. And so you're not necessarily able to make the right choice. And you might even be physically incompetent to do that. So mm. she's always had a rich love life, but she's managed to keep a, a distance from people in terms of a deeper connection often. Mm. And in this case, she latches on to somebody who she thinks can help her at that stage of life. And so the book, it's almost, as in Basket of Deplorables, it's almost sort of linked short stories. I mean, she is the link, but all these different things happen. We see from lots of other people's points of view. Yeah, that's right. It's a structure that I did with my very first book, The Imperfectionists. And it keeps popping up again because I, I really like the effect of it. So essentially, the way that it works is that you have chapters that stand alone. And so each of the stories in each chapter follows a different character. And as you go through, there is, however, a common story, a thread, something that is going on that sews them all together. And as you read the book, which is true in The Imperfectious and true for The Impostors too, and true for, for Bosco Deplorables, I would say, that in each case, as you read, there's 
underlying story that is knitting it all together is somewhat mysterious and you gradually figure out exactly how it works and toward the end then the individual stories connect with the larger story so it's you could call it a novel in stories mm. I mean I just think it's absolutely wonderfully done and each new character you introduce us to is fascinating I mean another one who's who's really lonely is Beck she's a comedy writer and I love your description of what she does so, so she's basically a ghostwriter for big comics and so she watches all of this comedy and you talk about her reverse engineering how she sits there and tries to work out why things are funny and I just wanted you to unpick that for us a bit. Yeah well I found myself fascinated maybe this speaks to me watching too much Netflix during COVID but I found myself fascinated with stand-up comedy. I've never in my life been to a stand-up comedy club. I don't even particularly like it, but I find it fascinating because I realize as you watch it that there is a great deal more craft to it and a great deal more clever writing than you might think. And there are narratives, there are ways in which the whole performance is sewn together and stories that are told to various effects. And it's not just punchlines. I think that's a very, very old-fashioned style of comedy to write jokes. Now it's much more about telling stories on stage that are somehow gratifying and interesting and captivating to people. And so I found myself curious about how that worked and then curious about the industry and studying it. And I suppose that that a little bit of that uh, reverse engineering is something that I was doing trying to understand that business. Mm. But I think that in her case... One of the things about this book is that every single chapter is a different variation on writing. So every single character in it is struggling to write in one way or another, trying to write, failing to write perhaps, and has different reasons in different contexts. So there's the comedy, the ghost writer, as you said. There's a food writer. There's a novelist who is on tour in Australia, and so on and so on. And the way that they're tied together is that they are either people or characters of the main writer, Dora. Mm. And mm. and that's a question that you sort of figure out as it goes on. And I particularly love the junior civil servant, Indian civil servant living in India, who's trying to write a letter <laughs> to the prime minister saying why population growth is a really bad thing and just doesn't succeed. It's a heartbreaking chapter. Yeah. Again, as you say, it's another variation of, of writing. He's trying to find the words to, to, in his mind, save his country. So he believes that a huge amount is at stake, but he can't quite figure out how to put it into words to get the attention of the prime minister. It's also, I mean, you were talking earlier about writing to kind of reflect the zeitgeist or be in the moment. And this is also a COVID novel. And one of the, the ways you describe it, and this is, I think, particularly true for performers, because I think this happened to a lot of people. They're stuck indoors, separated from those they love to be loved by. And I thought that was such a such a good line, because I think for a lot of performers, suddenly that whole side of them that needs that constant gratification of adoration by a public just went. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, there was another element of the COVID experience that struck me at the time and that filtered into this novel. And that was that the experience in normal times of being a writer is, as I alluded to, that you're stuck in a room looking at pieces of paper or at a screen and you're conjuring or imagining people and putting them there and imagining these characters and bring them to life. And if I am a solitary person, I live full of other people or I live surrounded by other people in my work. And so you're thinking about 
particular characters, but also about human beings generally, about humanity. And you're glimpsing them through the windows or through your screen. In other words, very involved with them, but very separate from them, very separated from them. And it occurred to me that during COVID, many people who were not writers were having a tiny glint of that same experience, mm. that so many people were stuck in a room somewhere, looking at their screens, thinking about other people, about human beings, making judgments about them, trying to understand why they were doing things. And in a way, sort of wishing that they were there and populating them in their imagination and on their screens in different ways, in a way that isn't quite like being a writer, but that echoed with it. So one of the things that I heard often is that if it was extremely hard for performers to manage without the love of their fans, it was relatively seamless for many writers because, well, there were complications, for example, suddenly having your offspring in the writing room and things like that. And there were difficulties that they faced like anybody else. This fashion of working was not really that dissimilar to what they typically did. And the odd thing about COVID, I think, is that it was maybe the only time in history that I know of where the exact same predicament hit everybody in the world at the exact same time. And yet... Almost every experience was different because it really depended how it hit you, both in terms of, let's say, your, your physical well-being, but also your, your life circumstances. You're speaking again of loneliness, your loneliness, or maybe the glut of people where you happen to be based. And so it was, a, of course, an extraordinarily strange time, but one that seemed to accelerate and emphasize many of the themes and key elements in each person's life. And it certainly produced a really, really wonderful book. Tom, just very quickly before we go, what's next for you? I don't know. At the moment, I'm studying behavioral science. I've become very interested in that. So I'm taking a little interlude to, to do that seriously and see what comes of it. Um, I don't know what it'll be. Well, I hope it's a book half as good as this one because this one is absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Yoshia. The Imposters is by Tom Rackman. It's published by River Run and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hole and Helmi Pillai. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.